KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. Election years are always a little bit wild in America, but 2020 seems like it was a different animal entirely. Yes, there's a lot of things that Republicans and Democrats don't agree on. But for some reason this year, it felt like the parties had absolutely nothing in common. And that's even with a massive health crisis like the coronavirus pandemic. So what is it that prevents people from different political parties from finding common ground? Is there a math behind why America is so polarized? And in other places around the world that don't have two-party systems, does the same kind of polarization happen? Dr. Robin Kolodny is a professor and chair of the political science department at Temple University. Dr. Kolodny, we talked before the election and talked about battleground states. But today, you know, I want to talk about the intense election period that we just went through. It feels like I can't really remember the last time Republicans and Democrats were at each other's throats like this. And I don't know if I'm making it up or maybe I just never paid attention this closely, but do you think the political climate was any more aggressive this year than previous years? Whether the strategy and tactics were different is a different story, but you got more people to vote. This is going to be the highest voter turnout we've had in more than 40 years. And some people are saying in a century. So that's significant. You got more people to believe that voting was important. And so that in itself is huge. This other post-result behavior, we've not really had anything like this probably ever, because even when we might have had more uh, passionate clashes, which we certainly did do in the 19th century, we didn't have social media, TV, things, ways for people to assemble collectively. There would be lots of little things, but they, a lot of us wouldn't know about it. And now we do. Now we know instantly that something's happening in another city and we can see footage and so forth. But yeah, you're absolutely right that there's a um, way too, uh, way more passion. Right. And and it all goes back to right that polarization, the the constant in your face where li- you mentioned social media and it's these two camps that are kind of constantly clashing at each other. Is there a root cause for the clashing or for this kind of constant back and forth. In a two-party system, you always have back and forth. But what you are perceiving is, again, it's a distortion because we're talking about a small number of Trump supporters and a small number of progressives who are the ones going and counter-protesting. I mean, this is such a tiny fraction of the overall population that it barely amounts to much. But if you think of all the, you know, it's not like they closed the New York Stock Exchange so they could go protest in the streets. And a lot of those people voted for Trump. You know, that's that's not that's not how that works. Right. So it's the extremists. And that's actually there's been some studies on this, that social media allows the extremists to shine some more light on themselves that they never were able to do before. So especially Twitter, because it's so short and so quick and, you know, can go viral. So it's it is not the mass of America that's at each other like this. You know, I think a lot of people too, they agree with some of the platforms that 
we have in our two party systems, right? The Republican Party, Democrat Party, maybe not all of them, but we have to pick which side we vote for in the election, in the general election. Maybe, you know, there's some right, an independent guy in Maine, there's some third party candidates that uh, locally go far. But at least on national politics level, we hear constantly about two parties. And considering the way we vote, right, the first past the post system, is there any room in America to actually have more than two parties on a national level? So the other way Uh, we call first past the post a single member plurality. And that means that with a couple of exceptions in most states, it doesn't matter how many candidates you have running for that congressional district or the state legislative district, state house or state Senate, only one of them is going to win. And that naturally whittles down the number of political parties that have any backing that will emerge because When there's two parties, you have kind of 50% chance going in. When there's four parties, you might flatter yourself to think you have 25%, but it's more likely that you have like a 5% chance. And so you're going to expend a lot of resources everywhere and literally end up with nothing, which is different from a proportional representation system, which allows a whole bunch of people to express different views. And you might have then multi-members from that district. Let's say you have 10 and then the two big parties, one could get five, one could get four, and then another one can get one. That's how, but since we don't have that, we end up discouraging more parties. But there have been very important moments in American history when a, a minor party movement did emerge and succeeded in changing our politics. Probably the most important, profound one was at the beginning of the 20th century with the progressive movement. And they formed the Progressive Party, which was a lot, the platform was about working people, workplace safety, getting children out of the mines, all of these kinds of things about ordinary people. Oh, and by the way, they're the ones that brought primaries to us. They didn't want nominees for the parties to continue to be selected in smoke-filled rooms. So that was the um, the other dimension of it. The progressives elected people to office all over the country. They had Teddy Roosevelt run for president under their nomination in 1912, which resulted, and then this is, of course, the thing, that's how Woodrow Wilson gets elected, because the Republican Party runs tapped Uh, The progressives run Roosevelt, who used to be a Republican, and they end up splitting the majority Republican vote between them. And that's how Wilson gets into the White House. What then happened, and this is also what happened more recently, I'll give you the other example in a second, is that instead of working to defeat this progressive platform, both parties looked at it and said, you know what, it just let's just go ahead and adopt the platform. And then there won't be a reason for them to exist, which is exactly what happened. So they, that's how now we don't even, most of us don't really think about things like, you know, a real restriction on government is uh, requiring people who work in a factory to have eye protection. We wouldn't say that like, no, that's, you know, you shouldn't do that because it's really just, that's just a market thing. You can choose to have a chance to be blinded or not. Right. So that, that's not, there's nobody on either side that says that. Later, 
Ross Perot did the same thing in 1992 when he started first as an independent candidate and then formed the Reform Party candidate. And Perot's appeal, which I think the best that he did was in Maine or something, was like 24, uh, maybe a little bit higher percent, is that he said, look, I'm a businessman. I don't think this stuff is so complicated. You should have a balanced budget. You should, you know, come clean up immigration, welfare, these kinds of things. And both parties, Bill Clinton took stuff right out of their playbook. And so did Newt Gingrich is how he won the House majority in 1994. And then that took away the, the need for a party like that. But we are in a time right now when I think I think both parties, but I think it's more the I'm much more worried about the Republican Party. And I'm say worried, not like I'm like, I'm sorry if this happens. I'm just more like you know concerned because it really isn't a good thing when you don't have a well-organized opposition. You really want some back and forth on any new policy ideas. So the problem for the Republican Party right now is that even though they coalesced or a lot of them did behind Trump, they have this fissure between Tea Party extremists and what used to be the mainstream of the Republican Party. So that's a real issue because that more populist view of the economy is so radically different from what capital needs to do on Wall Street that it, they almost can't coexist. And that's a really interesting set of problems. Like, for example, the Tea Party would have been fine if some of the um, like the big banks went bankrupt at the global financial crisis. On the other hand, you've got people like a Mitt Romney who can be conservative in other ways. But on this issue, he's had so much experience in industry that he knows how you don't create one job at a time. That's that's sort of the image that doesn't actually affect very many people. If each, you know, mom and pop uh, ice cream stand hires one person, what you want is um, a company to open it up a factory, right? And then and create a lot of jobs at once and then things that have to supply that business. So it's already started uh, for the last few election cycles that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has invested very heavily in defeating these Tea Party Republicans in primaries. So you haven't noticed it the same way, but there is there's a very serious battle going on. You can see it already. Look at the senators who have acknowledged that Biden won the election and those that haven't. On the Democratic side, there's always been a, a left or progressive wing that's always been uh, more upset with mainstream Democrats. But they they're going to have some very restricted geographic appeal, if any at all. And we'll know soon. I mean, there's already some uh, argument that they made the opening to make Democrats more vulnerable, lower in the ticket by espousing so-called socialist views. Right. So I think they're less likely to split. I mean, the Democrats, they're a bigger tent than ever, but they are a pretty big tent party. I like that you brought that up and also like the comparison when the party split, <laughs> because I feel like there has been AOC has been a big one on the left who has come out saying, you know, she regrets she ever ran and that they're not listening to her socialist points of view. Democrats are blaming them for losing seats. And then, you know, we're hearing it not confirmed, but that Trump could run again in 2024. So it's interesting to maybe see what the Republican Party could do 
do you think, I mean, a, a split in the party, do you think that is ever going to happen again? These are unprecedented times, too. What, the question is, is it, are they going to heal? Well, let me put it to you this way. In 2016 and in 2020, the Republican Party held a nominating convention, which is actually the highest uh, level of the Republican National Committee's business doing for they only once every four years they can change all the rules. The only living Republican president of the United States would not attend either of them. Who thinks of George W. Bush as being a lefty radical? He, I, I can't say how the idea that Bill Clinton wouldn't go to a convention or that Jimmy Carter, if he was able, or I'm sure he zoomed in, but the fact that George W. Bush boycotted it when the, the convention was held in 2016, it was in Ohio. John Kasich was the governor, the Republican governor of Ohio. He wouldn't go in his own state, not even to see the other people. Droves of those establishment Republicans boycotted both of them. So what I'm saying is you already have it. Now, what happened in 2016, and that's this is the open question about what the Republicans will do going forward, is that they didn't clear the field. They had so many people, just like the Democrats had. The Democrats, though, it operated like it couldn't have gone better in terms of unifying the party quickly than it did. But the Republicans didn't have that. And that's what did them in. So it's not like in the early contest, Trump won by these huge margins. He just got delegates every time. If you reran those primaries and instead of having John Kasich, Chris Christie and Jeb Bush, so three establishment Republicans, what if you hadn't had all three of them? What if only one of them had been in? That would have made it the whole dynamic would have been different. I'm, you know, I'm just asserting that that's so you've got that thing all because as other candidates, let's say even you liked Marco Rubio or whatever, and he dropped out, then you would might go to Jeb Bush or Chris Christie. But that's not what ended up happening. And they didn't have they lost control of the situation. And that's going to be the question is that whether or not the John Kasichs and the Jeb Bushes and others that are still there and very unhappy and with, along with the Mitt Romneys. And there are other reasonable people, by the way, in Congress who are Republican. Not all of them are Tea Party people. A lot of them are a good number, but they're getting more and more exasperated. And some of them, if they were entering politics today, would just become Democrats, hmm. which is what happened in all of New England, by the way. New England used to be pretty closely divided between the two parties. You saw a little of that with Maine having those mixed results. But Connecticut used to have half its delegation was Republican and Massachusetts has Republican governor, but I don't think anybody in Congress. But then after the party got so radicalized with the Tea Party, new people that had mainstream views called themselves Democrats. Which is why Biden said what he said in the debate when um, Trump tried to and one of the debates kept trying to label him as a socialist. And Biden said it was the right thing to say, by the way. I mean, it's technically correct and also appropriate. He said, I am the Democratic Party. He's like, well, the guy you were running against, he says, I beat him. Well, not by very much. I mean, it's like this was a strange thing. But that what Biden was exactly making the point that really needed to be made. 
I'm not for Medicare for all. I'm not the one with the socialist views. You want to go ahead. Uh, remember, there was a point um, in that first debate, I think, where Biden said uh, he seems to forget who he's running against. Like he brings up Sanders. He brings up Hillary. And like, it's me. Hello. <laughs> and that's a that's a really interesting um, position to be in and probably accounted for him getting uh, more independence, which we definitely saw in this election. Mm-hmm. We're talking a lot about 2016. And I think for the general election in 2016, we saw this, maybe not huge, but a bigger third party turnout than this year, than the 2020, especially. Do you think the polarization that has happened on both sides had anything to do with that? Was that a driver maybe for people who voted? The third parties on the ballot are almost always just a protest vote, right? A sacrificial lamb kind of thing. Nobody expects the libertarian to get any electoral votes or the green candidate or anything like that. So it's, it's who were these voters previously that were going to the polls knowing that the candidate they chose had no chance of winning. So doing a protest vote, maybe there was something else lower down the ticket. In other words, they were probably, they're very informed voters. Now you've got huge mobilization efforts on both sides. And we're just talking about the top of the ticket. A lot of those people, especially in Pennsylvania, it's how some of the line offices went Republican while Biden's winning. They just bubbled in Joe Biden and they left. So that doesn't say necessarily that the third parties diminished in their appeal. It's that all the new people who came out were not thinking that way at all. They would not have, you know, they'd not have bothered to ask for um, the mail-in envelope if they were going to vote that way. They voted for the top of the ticket. End of story. Including I'm a machine operator and I saw a lot of not as many as you might think, but, you know, still a good number um, do exactly that. Just have one bubble on the ballot and that's it. Mm-hmm. So but again, you're you're going to see. Uh, they're predicting like 68, 69%. And in this state, it's, I think it's going to be 73, 74%, which is unbelievable. It's never happened. So think about it that way. If we went from our best performance being 61%, it's like 73%. The extra 12% came because they were convinced that they had to vote for the top of the ticket. So if you look at it that way, they just didn't get the overage, like the Libertarians, the Greens got those other people that they always got, and the new people didn't care about them. Also, they don't campaign at all. How would you really expect that? If somebody's not a habitual voter, they wouldn't have any idea. I mean, I had one voter get mad at me, like, who are all these people on the ballot? Literally is what she said to me. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And it goes back to, right, like some local offices being completely different than how the community or right district voted at the top level. A lot of people do not want to follow. I don't know. Oh, I kind of know why, but I think they're wrong. Um, they don't want to follow the political party queue, which is like the party, the Democrat, the Republican, whatever the party is. And so the farther they go down the ballot, the more they don't recognize the name, they stop voting. So it isn't true that whatever the number is of votes that Biden and Trump got in Pennsylvania, you're not going to find that for state house. Because that's what and it's really interesting because we've been convinced that Um, As Americans, we're supposed to not be led by the parties and we're supposed to make our own decisions. Well, that's what this leads to. Actually, parties are pretty good cue about where that candidate stands relative to it's not exact, but we can't know exact. 
the level of division we see in politics here, is this an American thing or is it everywhere else? I know people like to talk about polarization and it's true, but there's always been a pretty well-organized left that hasn't wavered that much from their essential positions. What they didn't have was a right wing that was willing to use guns and disobey the laws. And yes, this happening in many European countries. There's the economic volatility combined with an unproductive conversation everywhere about immigration is what tends to fuel these. And in Europe, especially, those are very nationalistic parties. So even some of the most progressive countries uh, want to help people as long as they're of the ethnicity of the dominant group. So there, there's, there's still a lot of this, what you identify as being, you know, American or German or other, something that's literally foreign to you. That that gets, I mean, and it's it's the way that has defined a lot of tensions throughout the nation's history. I mean, I was saying to somebody the other day, do, um, you ever notice when we talk about all of the things that Trump makes fun of, right? People with disabilities or any of his opponents or, you know, the, the list is very Mexicans. I've never heard him say anything like that about LGBTQ. So that was the big, the kind of scary thing in the 80s is that um, you couldn't have a teacher in a school who was gay because they'd make all the kids gay. That kind of thinking, you hardly, you never hear that really at all anymore. And the courts are now catching up by going ahead and granting rights. And so if it was truly divisive on everything, you would get some other rhetoric. And it's, it's um, you notice how little people talked about abortion in this election. I mean, there's a lot of, Stuff like that. Um, as I did another forum. Remember, I do campaign finance and I said at the end of it, you know, we haven't talked about foreign influence in the election because we didn't think there was any significant, maybe because Facebook and Twitter did their, um, what they said they would do. And nobody mentioned the role of money because the money was about equal, by the way. So that's really interesting that we're so many of us are talking about these ideas. There, there are those far off or, you know, far to the right, far to the left parties in Europe and et cetera. But I, I think of the parliamentary system, right, how they have to literally work together and build coalitions and make the government happen. I just think of how we work here and it's it's so different. So let's use the UK as an example. So you don't really campaign on your own like we do here. The party funds the campaigns. And so if you decide to not behave, right, that you don't go ahead and vote the way you're supposed to, then they don't have primaries. The party elites decide, oh, you don't vote with us? You're not running again. They threw out, I can't remember who it was. It's a very, um, somebody who was a relative of somebody famous uh, was thrown out of the conservative party just recently. So that's that's the way. So you're saying, OK, oh, it looks so brutal how we do it. But this is a, a brutality in a different way that um, six people at the top of the conservative party will meet in a, a room and they come out and they tell the rest of the party, this is how you're voting. And if you balk, they're like, well, you'll be gone the next time. And they make good on it. That's where we call that actually an arena, meaning that what actually happens on the floor of the chamber doesn't matter very much. But not that's not the nature of a legislature like we have in a presidential system. We're a transformative legislature. 
Nobody but Trump. No president thinks that I'm handing the budget to Congress and they're just going to stamp it. They know that there are going to be hearings and that there are going to be questions and reordering of some stuff. Biden's totally, this is his, you know, his métier, right? This is how he works best. Here's, here's the budget. Here's my budget. First move. Now you guys go ahead and say what you don't like. And I'll tell you what I agree. Okay, fine. I can change that. And, uh, and then that's a process. We think that that's contentious, but actually it's, it's a, the different way, given that all these guys are, have just gotten elected and there's nothing that anybody can really directly do to get them unelected, unlike in the parliamentary systems. Then, then what we do with that's different is we've got um, our dirty laundries out on the line. So in the parliamentary system, you didn't see the discussion that led to whatever it was. You know, they may have been all mad at each other, but it was private. Sometimes in some parliamentary systems, when you have to build coalitions, uh, sure, you get to see a little of that. But then again, the whole difference with parliamentary systems, which my, our friends in Europe don't get about us, is that. While a parliament can last up to five years, it's not a five-year term. I mean, if you have a, a profound disagreement in month 12, you call a new election. So they can't understand why, if we disapprove of people, why we don't have a new election. I'm like, because it's not their term. Like, that, they, you know, you get your term, it's this many years, it doesn't matter who likes you or who doesn't like you. What do you think, if anything, could be done in America? Do you think there should be something done? Do you think maybe something is happening that will make us less polarizing as we move forward as a country after this election? Well, we're going to have to see, aren't we? I have to say, I wish that people were a lot better informed about American government. If they were, we might not have that. But do you know that about half the states don't require you take that in high school, even if it's taught well, which is a problem. So that's actually something I've been thinking about a lot more. Not only do people not understand how the government actually works, but they don't understand what government does. I think this is the fundamental problem with the Tea Party, is that they're in some kind of deep denial that collective goods like national defense, clean air, clean water, paved roads... Uh, those kinds of things are supported by taxpayer money. They don't just emerge. Uh, what's going on right now very publicly with um, a vaccine coming out? You know, it seems very slow to us, but the point is those government scientists do a great job of making sure we're not injecting poison into ourselves. And that's why it takes longer than you think it ought to, right? We didn't do that earlier, but there's no true understanding of that because they want to see everything at the community level. And that's silly in a way, right? Because otherwise then, how do you have a national chain if everything is, is you know, created by you and your community? Obviously we're in a multinational economy at the moment. But the other thing, what I like to say to my college students, who many of whom, not all of whom, but many of whom are Bernie Sanders supporters, is I try to tell them, and I'm not sure I've convinced any, but I think people should think about this. There's not as big of a difference as you think between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. The big that there's no question in my mind that Joe Biden would prefer a universal health care system where everybody got covered. But the difference between them, and this is, goes back to what you said, AOC may be thinking, oh, she shouldn't have run, is that Biden will take half a loaf. 
But Sanders stood up there a couple of times and said, I voted against this trade deal because it's not good enough. And others on the stage said, we agree that it wasn't good enough, but it was better than the last deal. And if only a few farmers are better off, then let's why, why would we not let them be better off? It's that understanding. You can't just because you want to make us a parliamentary system. So does Biden know that he's not going to get it? He, he's, but he's used to that, right? I'm going to make this bold proposal. You're going to push back some. But maybe we're, I'm not going to let you push back all the way. We're going to find out where you can be okay with it. And then the next time I'll go, you know, let's see if it works. That's really unappealing if you're 20 years old. I get it. But that, that's the reality. 330 million people, you can't just snap your fingers and have everything change. So that is really, it's, it's, so it's not necessarily the viewpoint of what's the perfect society. And that's what makes me a little bit sad is that the people on the left that are very upset are upset at the wrong thing. They think that the, these moderates are just the, the ones who are kind of placating the, the right. And, you know, we live in a country where 84, I think it is, it might be 85% of Americans work for the private sector. It's just not smart to go ahead and keep saying, let's obliterate the private sector. I mean, that's how people support themselves, right? So that's the other reason that you take, you know, you can take little baby steps and, and, you know, pretty soon you can get, you can get to the end of the race by going fast or slow, right? So that's my big message. Don't don't yeah, be yeah. don't be deterred by incrementalism. I mean, I guess going back to the way we vote, uh, just to get your opinion, how do you feel about ranked choice voting? Right, like for local elections, primary, some states use it, some states just introduced it this year. How do you think that that would change the process? Given that you know some people feel s- some type of way, depending on how we would implement it if it could ever be possible. What what are your thoughts? Okay, well, what, what it's, thoughts? so it's got the same problem, mostly, that the um, Electoral College compact, the state compact is, is that it's a great idea if you're in a blue area. And the thing is that where ranked choice works so well is that, all right, if you if you strongly prefer this candidate, but they have so many more votes than they need to get in, then I would like to not waste my vote and transfer it to someone else. All right. That is or or that person. I don't think this person that I really want is going to win, but I'd like to go ahead and be on the winning side. The reason that we have outcomes that seem a little off is that back to first past the post, single member plurality, you only have to get half the votes. 50% is going to get you the seat. So does 70%. So does 90%. So here you are winning the District of Columbia with literally 90% or Congressman Dwight Evans, he gets 92% of the vote. So those extra 42% of the people, if they had been, if the line had been drawn somewhere else, they would make the difference in, you know, in tilting another district. But that's not how this works. So Democrats tend to have another political scientist called this the cheap seats. They tend to have more of these seats with an overwhelming advantage because they're urban. Right. So the Republicans probably have a few of those. But Republicans generally are winning in a lot more districts where their incumbent is getting 55, 56 percent. 
They have many more of those people and many fewer 92% people. So ranked choice voting works great for places where there is an abundance of people on the one side or the other. And it just so happens the Democratic coalition is is like that. Mm-hmm. And that's why right, it, right. that's why it doesn't come out perfectly. Also, if people when they add up, like, here's how people voted for the House and the Senate or how they voted for it, and you do the math and it's like, wait a minute, then 60 percent of the House seats should be. No, because that's not how we count them. Right. And that's where you that's where you end up. As you said, it's these breakdowns within the party. And I guess, you know, if we ever did, and I know this is, you know, very far off, but if we could in national politics, maybe even local, do you think, or maybe I should say, what do you think a third party would look like? Or how do you think it would happen if it ever happened again? Well, there's a political scientist named Ted Lowy who talked for a long time about what he called a radical middle party. That what you would end up doing is taking the moderates. That was kind of the idea that Perot had with the Reform Party, but Perot didn't know what he was doing, and it was all about him. He didn't really want to build a coalition with others. He just wanted you know, his ideas, which was the issue. But there are enough now, I think, of, of people that have a lot of experience and a lot of credibility that they could do that if they wanted. If they wanted to say, you know what, if the Tea Party people want to take over the Republican Party, let them have it. And then let's go ahead and call ourselves something else. And then let's pick off support ostensibly from both of the parties. Uh, Then that could, the, the only way that really works is if you think that you could then force the Republican Party, what was left of it, to be the third place party. That's the gamble. There have been several people who've talked about doing this. Bill Weld, John Kasich, you know, others. And th- that would be a pretty, pretty powerful force. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but they have to, I think the calculation is, so between me and the world, don't worry about who's running in 2024. The Republicans' worst scenario would be to have Trump run again. And you're also assuming nothing interesting will happen in the meantime. Everyone is excited about the presidential pardon potential, but you've got to remember that's federal cases and crimes. It has nothing to do with what the state of New York and the attorney general there is trying to do with Donald Trump, Don Trump Jr., Eric Trump. I don't know if it's Jared Kushner and Ivanka, probably, but I am not really banking on Trump opponents shouldn't say, oh, he'll go to prison. I don't think that's going to happen. I just think he's he's going to have it's going to cost him financially, maybe everything. And that's what actually uh, Scaramucci was on last night saying, basically, that that was one of the main drivers was that that, you know, being in the White House protects him. But that also assumes that nobody else is going to come on the horizon or want to occupy the space that Trump has now. For example, one person that uh, everybody should be watching is Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass. It's spelled S-A-S-S-E. Sass hates Trump. But Sass is got a consistent conservative record. The man is a historian. He's a Ph.D. from Yale. He was the president of a college there. And he dislikes Trump for the reasons that a lot of conservatives would dislike Trump, right? You know, these the morally inappropriate behaviors and language and all this kind of stuff. And 
if he runs, he'll get a ton of support, right? Or if it's somebody like a Jeff Flake, um, who also disliked Trump. So that that's the thing. If they thought they could do it through the Republican Party, like take the Republican Party back, then then that would maybe be the end and Trump would just be a blip like Barry Goldwater was for the Republicans in 1964, very conservative nominee, like George McGovern, a very left nominee was for the Democrats in 72. And again, for Republicans, it's, you know, 1950s and McCarthyism, where Joe McCarthy got his way for a while until his support crumbled and he didn't. So this kind of the way that the press builds up this, you know, oh, this this blind loyalty is not so blind. I mean, McConnell will do what he says, what he wants to do. He's not the one running out there um, with uh, calling everybody like Lindsey Graham is. That one I don't get. But I mean, McConnell, McConnell is really hoping he gets the majority. And even if he doesn't, he's a, a good leader in the sense that he can help frame the agenda. And, you know, he, he's going to do his job with Trump there or without Trump there. Dr. Kolodny, thank you so much for joining me today and talking with me about this range of topics and the polarization in American politics. Hey, you're welcome. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.